You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Amanda McInnes-Hackney, adjunct professor of theology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Karenport, Saskatchewan. With me today is Dr. Ruth Tucker to talk about her new book, Katie Luther, First Lady of the Reformation, The Unconventional Life of Katerina von Bora. Dr. Tucker has a PhD from Northern Illinois University and has 30 years of teaching experience at a variety of universities and colleges. Welcome, Dr. Tucker. We're so glad to have you today. It's my pleasure. Um, I, I have to say I'm absolutely uh, floored by your book. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of work on women in the Reformation over the last couple of years in my PhD program, and I really appreciate the heart and the voice that you give to Katie Luther. So what I'm hoping to do is is just ask some questions um, about what inspired you to write this book. Um, I know that you've recently released another book called Extraordinary Women of Christian History, What We Can Learn from Their Struggles and Triumphs. So my question is, how are these two books related? And did the book on Katie Luther flow from your work on the Women in Church History book? Well, the books are related because they're both on women in church history. Uh, the book on Katie did not necessarily flow from that book. In fact, I have written a number of books that relate to uh, church history and women in church history, so she's appeared a number of times before. The reason I focused on her is, of course, this is the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther's posting his 95 theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. So there's a big celebration going on, and I thought, well, it would be good to learn more about Katie Luther, his wife, at this time. Perfect. And and one of the big questions that the church, both Protestant and Catholic, is asking this year is, is the Reformation still important today? So given all your, the work you've done on the Reformation, what would your answer to that question be? Well, of course, it's very important because the church split in the 16th century more than it ever had before with Luther's Reformation and the ongoing uh, process of that Reformation. It split many times more into Protestant denominations, but today we see religion, Christianity in general, vastly different than we would have without the 16th century Reformation. So there's no doubt it is very significant today and will continue to be significant as long as Christianity is alive. Fantastic. So let's talk about um, opportunities for women uh, prior to the Reformation and the role that convents in Europe played leading up to the Reformation. Um, so like, what were some of the benefits and downsides for women entering monastic life? Well, monastic life was the only opportunity for women uh, prior to the Reformation, and of course it has been significantly so following the Reformation. Uh, a woman's life uh, was not good throughout medieval Europe. It wasn't so bad at all in ancient Greece and Rome. But as we get into the medieval period, uh, women's lives were difficult, even as men's lives were. And uh, women often died very early in childbirth. They did not get educational opportunities. And monastic life gave them that opportunity. As for women having serious ministry, that is debatable. In a lot of cases, women were consigned to a life of silence, and some people affirmed that 
uh, even today, but uh, it's a it's a very singular form of ministry, and it's sad that women did not have greater opportunities. Of course, there were great abbesses uh, throughout the medieval period, the heads of the monasteries who wrote and who spoke publicly, but most mon- nuns did not have opportunities to have ministry outside their cloistered convents. Um, so you talk about um, Ursula von of Munsterberg, um, Munsterberg um, and she, you talk about how the convent life actually uh, negatively affected her health uh, living in the in the monastery. So what was happening there that it actually wasn't a good thing for her to be in the monastery? Well, that was her claim, that she had to get up too early in the morning, which okay. is true. And uh, there were uh, perhaps other difficulties, but she may have very well had difficulties outside the monastery as well. What's so incredibly significant about Ursula and other nuns who spoke out during the Reformation is that Katie herself was a nun, and she escaped the convent, but she never spoke negatively about the convent or about Catholic life, and she had opportunity to. Her husband was uh, introducing other tracts by nuns who had escaped the convent, and of course Martin Luther spoke so negatively of monastic life, but Katie never did, and that's Fascinating, an interesting point. And so, so, t- so, tell our reader or our listeners a little bit about um, Katie's escape from the convent. When when I read it in in your book, it was like this is a scene from an action movie. Can you recap the story and tell us about the personalities of the women who chose to 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 flee monastic life? Well. In her case, uh, 12 nuns escaped uh, at midnight or so uh, in a herring uh, barrel wagon that had come to the convent on many occasions to deliver herring barrels, and they escaped on his way out. Now, this was preplanned, and it was a conspiracy, I suggest, Uh, The ultimate conspiracy of the 16th century or perhaps beyond, some people have kind of taken it and written about it as a midnight caper. It was anything but that. Uh, These women had taken a vow of silence, so how a dozen women, not men, but women (laughs) who've taken a vow of silence, could carry this out on the inside of the monastery and then make contacts on the outside where it was a capital offense, a death penalty, if someone uh, kidnapped nuns. And that's exactly what happened when uh, Leonard Kopp came in and kidnapped, with his nephew, kidnapped uh, nuns. So how they planned that, how that was carried out, it's an incredible story. Now, the lives of the nuns and why they left, there's really nothing available. We would love it if there were, if every nun had written a uh, a journal entry about that night uh, night and how they got out. But, you know, perhaps they did. But women's literature, women's writing was not counted for anything. So even if Katie 
had written something down of some of these other nuns, why would you save that? Who would want that? So that's one of the tragedies of women's history and one of the tragedies of the whole 16th century, the life of Katie. She had written letters to her husband, and there's a lot more literature that might be available on her, but it was never deemed worth saving or protecting or copying. Something can always burn up in a house fire, but Martin Luther's words had been copied down so many times that if it's burned up, you've got multiple copies. Not so with Katie. Wow. Um, So do we know anything that happened to the other nuns that escaped with Katie? Like, Do we have any sort of uh, post-escape? Did they all get married? Did any of them go back to the convent? Did anything like that happen to them? Do we know anything about that? Well, the 11 others, uh, some went with their families, a number of them married, and so, um, but, but their trail has kind of been lost, as would be typical of uh, women escapees. Had Katharina not married Martin Luther, this whole incident might be forgotten, and certainly we would know nothing about her. As significant as she was in her own right, we would know nothing about her, uh, ex- except that we now know she married the famous great reformer Martin Luther. Perfect. So, so let's talk about uh, women and 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 scripture and sort of this this um, what the Reformation sort of uh, raised up in them. So the the call for church reform was a call that that women especially picked up and ran with. Um, and part of this was uh, the the emphasis in the Reformation on getting scripture into the hands of the common people. So we've got Erasmus writing in 1516, he says, I should prefer that all women, even of the lowest rank, should read the Evangelists and the Epistles of Paul. And in your book, while while its focus is Katie Luther, you highlight several prominent women of the Reformation who took up the call to reform, like Argula von Grumbach and, and Catherine Zell. What are some common traits or experiences you see between these women and Katie Luther? Well, uh, they did take up the cause of the reform, Zell and Grumbach, as you have named them, but uh, uh, Katie did not, and so that's a significant aspect of her, and that's one reason why I have not focused significantly on her before, because I have largely focused on women in Christian ministry, as I have written books on church history. And Katie, she just simply was not significant. She was a wife of Martin Luther, so she kind of got lost in the pages uh, of my writing. And then with the 500th anniversary, uh, I started looking deep into her life, and that is the very difference between her and so many other women who were involved in ministry. She was not. She was a woman of the world. She uh, she was the one who convinced Martin Luther after their marriage to keep the black cloister, which had 40-some rooms, and she turned it into a boarding house slash holiday inn, charging uh, rent, board and room for students and colleagues who would come to see Luther. She made money on that. She had a vast farm that went with the black cloister with gardens and fields and animals of every kind. She oversaw that. She bought other farms, uh, sometimes as far as two days distance away, and she uh, hired workers to help her with those. 
uh, she was the businesswoman of the 16th century. In fact, I've read about a lot of women who tried to reach out in business and get involved in business, and they never were as successful as Katie, though I'm not saying there was nobody back then. Part of her success was that people were coming to Wittenberg to hear her husband, and she took advantage of that. She made his students and friends and colleagues uh, who came and stayed at the Black Cloister pay rent, even though he was often trying to let them stay free. Uh, she insisted otherwise. She was a very strong woman. Uh, she stood up to her husband in many ways, and he could have not carried out the Reformation without her. So so that's fascinating when, when you sort of think of the difference between her and somebody like Grumbach, who, who was doing things without the permission of her husband. She was publishing tracts and taking on university officials, and her husband wasn't supporting her. And now here's Katie, and she's sort of the flip. She's behind the scenes supporting her husband, but her public uh, face isn't as prominent as Grumbach, who was publishing at the time. Her public face was actually, at times... Uh, quite prominent, but people did not like Katie. They thought she was overstepping her bounds. Luther's colleagues considered her bossy and domineering, um, and they simply did not, for the most part, like Katie Luther because she wielded far too much power behind the scenes. Theirs was an egalitarian marriage through and through. Unless somebody takes up the case that it wasn't egalitarian, that actually uh, she was the one who was the head of the home and he submitted to her, which was often the case. You could make that argument, but actually it was a very egalitarian marriage. I, I like You have a quote from Melanchthon in, in your book where you basically say that he calls Katie um, the despot of the Luther home. Um, so she clearly, well, that, he clearly didn't and, like how bossy she was or how much she ruled the house. And, and that is true of others. And Luther himself once said, the only way to get an obedient wife is to hew her out of stone. But on other occasions, he said, she is my Moses. I am her Aaron. So he looked up to her. He would often say to her, send me instructions on what to do in this or that case. Or he would say, I think you should uh, sell the uh, land and buy this parcel, look into it. And she would carry out things where he was suggesting. Sometimes she went ahead and bought properties that she knew he did not really approve of, but she knew in the end it, he would come around. So uh, she was a very, very independent woman uh, who acted on her own. Luther was busy enough uh, with his writing and teaching, preaching, and uh, when people uh, kind of condemned him to his face uh, on a couple of occasions about her, he said, I, uh, uh, she doesn't tell me how to write sermons or write books. And she didn't. That was not her area at all. They were partners in their marriage and partners in their outreach, and she stood behind him. So, so this is a fascinating time because we have a, a new role um, for women uh, in light of the Reformation, and that's the role of pastor's wife. Um, clergy before this weren't married, and so you have women like Katie and Catherine Zell who are marrying clergy, and this was quite scandalous. Can, can you tell us a little bit about this role of pastor's wife and, and how it was received in the public? 
Well, Catherine Zell truly would be the person who stands out as a pastor's wife because she worked alongside her husband, and she insisted that she was not running the show, that she was like the dear Mary Magdalene who kind of stood out only when there weren't men uh, who were fulfilling their roles. And that was certainly true after her husband died. But she would be the premier pastor's wife, as we have come to think about it. Um, Katie was not at all. She was a wife of a pastor, but she was um, a a businesswoman. And very rarely do we see her in any role uh, as a pastor's wife, per se. Now, at one point, Luther appoints her to serve on a steering committee that was uh, looking for a new minister. And that's highly unusual, and that's not considered the role of a pastor's wife, at least in evangelical circles of uh, recent decades. So um, she, she was married to a pastor, but really had nothing to do with what we have come to think of the role of the pastor's wife. Which, which is fascinating. If, 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 if we're going to take up Katie Luther as this heroine for us today, um, maybe she gives us an opportunity for a pastor's wife that isn't just seen as uh, the unpaid extra that comes along with the pastor, right? And that happens in a lot of our churches today, where it's just assumed that the wife will play the piano and teach Sunday school and all of that kind of things. That was true far more decades ago. Um, but today it is less so. Most churches don't assume that the pastor's wife is somebody who is an unpaid uh, half-time, half-pastor, or something double-time, I should say, a pastor who works with women's ministries and all kinds of women's Bible studies and child care and things like that. So, uh, But Catherine Zell would be that person who stands out as uh, kind of paving the way for a pastor's wife uh, to serve behind her husband. Katie paved the, didn't pave the way, but for today as a role model, Katie stands clear as a fully equal wife to her husband. There was no issue, there is no sense at all that she was anything lesser. Martin Luther did not consider her so. It was an egalitarian marriage, though he would try to claim on many occasions that the wife should be submit to the husband, and he would use a typical language, although that was often in his earlier years. Married to Katie for 20 years, it was in the last half of his marriage. He kind of calmed down on that, and everyone knew that theirs was an egalitarian marriage, though there was no word for it at the time. So, so let's talk about Katie Martin. How did Katie and Martin end up together? Can you tell me their story of how they got together? Well, they, uh, he knew uh, uh, the nuns who left the convent. Uh, nine of them came to Wittenberg. Uh, eight of them uh, went back to their families or were married fairly soon. She was the last one standing. She, uh, he tried to put her up with Casper uh, Glatz, and she absolutely refused that. She actually had fallen in love. Uh, with Jerome, uh, Jerome Bumgardner, and uh, he he was a student at Wittenberg, and words were whispered, and they had apparently spent uh, some time 
uh, together, and uh, they were engaged to be married. He went back to his family, and his family was horrified that he would consider marrying a an impoverished runaway nun. He never wrote back. She wrote many letters pleading with him to uh, tell her what's going on. He was a cad uh, and did not answer her letters, not even so much as to send word with somebody else that he could no longer carry out with their plans to get married. Uh, so that was a, a, a terribly painful thing to her. She refused the older man, Casper, that they tried to force her to marry, and she proposed that she would marry uh, one of the other lesser-known reformers or Luther himself. Uh, the other man felt that she was too domineering and strong-willed, and he said no. Luther thought, oh, what the heck, he would go ahead with it and please his father because he might then bear children and have progeny, and so uh, they got married. It was no love match at all. To begin with, uh, Luther later said on into their marriage that um, he said the book of the, the epistle of Galatians was his Katharina von Bora. Uh, he loved that epistle of Paul, and he said she was valuable, val more valued than uh, uh, Venice and France combined, but that he would say Galatians is his Katharina von Bora uh, really shows that Martin Luther adored his wife. He recognized what she did for him, and yet he would he would often say, being married to her, I have to have patience. All I do is have patience. Well, she had ha she had to have a lot of patience with him as well. So it was a two-way street. But uh, he adored Katie and she him. Uh, so he dies before she does. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about what life was like after Martin for Katie? Well, his death was an extremely painful thing for her. She was a worrywart, and the thing she worried about most was her husband's health. Uh, he was not in good health. He lived on into his 60s, which is an old man for the 16th century. Uh, but she was widowed. She had to fight, even though he uh, made a will out, again, an extremely egalitarian will, uh, that she would inherit all his wealth. And that was not uh, a thing of the 16th century. And, of course, that she would have the guardianship of her children. Uh, the uh, state ignored that. She had to fight in court for guardianship and for everything else. So that was a very difficult time. The other thing is, at about the time of Luther's death, uh, the wars of religion were beginning. There was just a lot of Catholic versus Protestant. There had been some of that before, but uh, this was very serious. There were bandits all over. There were plagues. She was running out of town. She was buying land and trying to sell land, making bad decisions, as we all do. When you're trying to keep your children alive, you've just been widowed, and everything is in turmoil all around you. And it was seven years after that that she was rushing out of Wittenberg due to a plague, and she was heading for Torgo, and on the way, she's getting into town. Either the horses bolted or something happened. She's in a rush. She fell out of the wagon, landed in a ditch of very cold water, was seriously injured. Just imagine somebody today having a car accident and is very seriously 
what we would call critically injured, but to have no medical care at all. She was brought to her daughter's home. Her daughter's then 18, or she was brought to a house, I should say. Her daughter nursed her for some three months while she's in excruciating pain, and then she dies. So it's a very sad end. Katie was uh, 16 years younger than Martin. She might have lived on for many years. Uh, but she didn't. She died some seven years after his death, and that time was very, very difficult for her. So in your discussion of life at the Luther home, you, you and, and you've alluded to this as you've sort of talked about their egalitarian marriage, you, you call Martin Luther a giant of family values, and, and I really appreciate how you emphasize throughout your book the mutuality of their relationship and all the places that you point to in Luther's writings where he acknowledges how he's indebted to Katie. Um, so today, the debate about the role of women rages on with two camps. We have complementarianism and we have egalitarianism. And I know that you've written previously about your personal experience with complementarian theology. So um, sort of bridging this to today, um, in what ways does your research into Katie and Martin's relationship complicate or clarify our stereotypical understanding of what a proper or biblical Christian marriage should look like or what it looked like in the past even? Well, I don't think you can take their example in any way to say, well, this then proves the Bible uh, at all, and, and so I'm certainly not going to go there. Martin Luther did a lot of things. Uh, shameful things during his life. He had uh, uh, a gutter language often. His colleagues were very embarrassed by that. He was anti-Semitic, and there are a lot of things that we would not take from Luther's example. So it's not as though everyone ought to have an egalitarian marriage, because Luther did. But don't try to use Luther as uh, a theological role model for a complementarian marriage, and, and I say a traditional marriage, or really a headship uh, marriage where women must submit to their husbands. He would certainly not be an example. If you want to use other historical figures as an example of that, there are many of them, because that was kind of the traditional role that came out of the Catholic Church, and uh, I think it was poor exegesis of Scripture and uh, poor theological uh, Formation. In fact, today there are people that are trying to make Jesus lesser in the Trinity because the wife is lesser than the man. So people go out on limbs all over the place to try to keep uh, women down. Uh, I'm not saying everyone ought to have an egalitarian marriage because it worked well with Martin Luther, but the fact is that is the kind of marriage he and Katie had. Or Dr. Tucker, I do want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about your book. Um, would you like to share with our listeners any of your upcoming projects so that we can look out for more of your work? Well, I'm not sure when my next project will appear, but I'm working on something that is uh, looking back on my growing up years in a little country church in northern Wisconsin and farm life. And we lived on the Yellow River, and I've tentatively named it Yellow River Almanac. And it kind of goes back and forth about life and how life has transitioned, and it's part poetic poetry and part prose. So uh, I'm not sure when that will come out, but that's what I've been working on for some time. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and it's a nice shift from, from these two books on women in church history. I appreciate that you're, you're so diverse in your writing interests. Um, and and, and as, as a fan of yours, uh, that's really important for my bookshelf. 
Um, well, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure being with you. Um, great. So I've been speaking with Dr. Ruth Tucker, and her book is Katie Luther, First Lady of the Reformation, The Unconventional Life of Katerina Von Bora. Um, you can click on the link in our show notes, buy a copy of the book. I re highly recommend this, buy a copy of the book. Read the book, which you should also do if you're going to buy the book, and join the conversation. Comments can be posted at the website christianhumanist.org or find us on Facebook under Christian Humanist. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Slack. And I'm Amanda McInnes-Hackney. Thank you for listening.